Welcome to the Bible Q&A Podcast, the show that answers your questions about the Bible, Christian theology, and church history. This podcast is brought to you by Risen Ministries and Creation Today. Now here are your hosts, Tim Chafee and Eric Hoven. Welcome to episode two of the Bible Q&A Podcast. I'm Eric Hoven, and Tim Chafee is here. Tim. Episode two, man. Can you believe this? No, we made it. We didn't get canceled yet. I, I got to tell you, you know, the Bible talks a lot about faithfulness and being faithful. I really feel that right now. I mean, episode two. This is good stuff, man. Yeah, we're really sticking with it, aren't we? I mean, we made it all the way to the second podcast. <laughs> I'm having a lot of fun and I'm looking forward to this one. Every time I study leadership, they always talk about faithfulness. So here we are. Or maybe this is getting up. Maybe this is going to be, you know, we got knocked down. We're getting back up. Maybe that's what's happening. There we go. <laughs> Hey, today we've got a great episode for you. We're going to cover a number of questions. We're going to try to get through three questions that people have written in, as well as hopefully time for a bonus question. Questions we're going to be answering today. How can you say that the Bible is God's word when it was written by men? Julie asked, what does abiding in Christ mean? And then what are the thoughts on Constantine the Great? Was his faith legit or was it political? So, Tim, I'm looking forward to getting into this episode with you today. Hey, pop quiz, 10 points if anybody gets this answer right. Last episode, in the first episode, Chris asked the question, what happens to children when they die? And what was the best passage that we said gives kind of the most context around that? There were several, but we said there was one that was kind of the best, and the answer is, did you get it right? Tim, do you remember the answer on that one? I do. Can I answer this question? Please go okay. ahead. Ten points if you get it right. Uh, we the one I said that I thought made them gave us the strongest argument was uh, Revelation twenty verses eleven through fifteen because the the people who are there who are judged and and thrown into the lake of fire are those who are judged according to their works and yes. it's hard to understand how an unborn child or a very young child uh, could be held uh, responsible for something they have not done yet. Um, so, of course, that's a very short answer to something we established in much more detail. So if you didn't listen to the first episode, go back and check that one out. Speaking of listener responsibilities, Tim, we gave him a list of a couple things you guys need to be doing. So can you hit those again real quick, listener responsibilities, and then let's dive into these questions. Yeah, the, the first one, well, I don't remember the exact order we gave them in, but um, <laughs> one was to send in your questions. If you got questions, go ahead and, and send those to us uh, because that's going to be the, that's going to provide the content for the show. That's what this is all about, answering your questions about uh, about the Bible, about church history, about Christian theology. Uh, number two, we uh, wanted you to uh, be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. Whatever Eric and I tell you, search the scriptures and make sure that what we're telling you is true. Uh, there, there's nothing wrong with doing that. In fact, we encourage you to do that because we're people, we make mistakes, uh, we're fallible. Um, and what was the third one, Eric? We got... <laughs> I just, so it was send in your questions, be like the Brians, and then practice charity. There we go. And you actually did get the first two in order, so good job on that. Practice charity towards others. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, we have to love one another, and even if we disagree, uh, being able to talk with charity. That's one of the reasons Tim and I are doing this podcast together is because I would come to him, and I'm, 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 I disagree, and I'm, and I'm talking to him about it, and we have great conversations, and iron sharpens iron, and Sometimes I feel like I'm 
I'm more like the wood getting sharpened by the iron as, as Tim corrects me on things. But uh, I was thinking more like I, a piece of foam or something. No, maybe, maybe foam, maybe foam and a hot knife. There we go. Would work. Um, but the, we have one more for you. Uh, one that we should have been pretty obvious for us and, and we didn't mention it last week, but uh, the, the fourth one would be to pray for us. And that's related to the other ones, but you know, we're, we're people, we, are fallible we make mistakes or at least eric does um yeah. <laughs> and i make plenty of them as well but um you know pray for us we want this show to be a blessing to many people and we want it to honor our lord and savior jesus christ so uh, be be in prayer that uh, we would be able to accomplish that that we would be able to speak uh, clearly and uh, our that what we present would be clear but it, that would also be accurate according to scripture uh, so that's uh, that's another responsibility we ask of you guys. Tim, great segue. According to scripture, that brings in the perfect segue to the first question. How can you say the Bible is the word of God when it was written by men? And this writer goes on, he says, and since it was written by people, how can you say that it is without error since people make mistakes? Or at least like Tim says, I do. Uh, there's that famous passage, of course, 2 Timothy 3.16. I remember memorizing this back in my Awana days. All scripture is God-breathed. So, Tim, walk us through this idea of the Bible being the Word of God, the Bible being really God's Word, even though it was written by men. So, should I put you on the spot and see if you still remember the verse from your Awana days? 16. It starts off with all scripture is given by inspiration yeah, of God all... or all scripture is God-breathed, yeah. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Bam! There we go. I gave you just enough time to open up your Bible and look it up. No, I, I actually, I didn't do that. I, it's really, uh, it's it's amazing, by the way, uh, when we instill scripture in our, in our young people's minds, my kids are memorizing verses right now that I memorized way back in my grade school days, and they do, they come to mind because I had just burned those into my head. So no, that really is one of those ones that's, that's yeah, that burned was, into my mind. That was good. I'm glad you got that one. Well, let's let's tackle this these questions then. So how can we say that the Bible is the Word of God if it was written by, by men? Obviously, we don't believe that God took a pen and wrote down Scripture. So it, it, it's not accurate. Some Christians will say, like, well, God wrote the Bible. That That's not really the best way to phrase it. Um, the, people wrote the Bible, but their writing was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was literally God-breathed or breathed out by God is what the Greek term there means. So it wasn't dictated by God to man, kind of like a, a boss who might uh, dictate something to a secretary and say, hey, take this down and, and do it word for word. That's not how the process went. Uh, Paul often had other people write for him. Silas and Timothy and Tertius were involved. Tertius wrote the book of Romans, but Paul wrote the book of Romans, right? Well, Tertius right. was the guy who was actually using the pen and writing things down. But the Paul's words that he was telling Tertius, those were the ones that were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit guides the process, but he still allowed each writer to use their own style and vocabulary. Uh, some of the New Testament writers were better at writing Greek than others. Just as today, some people are better writers than others. Correct, Eric? Um. Or you don't have to. Answer. You don't have to answer. Yes, and I'm very thankful for those of you that can see the spelling errors that jump off the page. I, on the other hand, 
I'm after the context of the message, Tim. I'm not caught up in all the details. You're not, you're not legalistic about spelling like me. <laughs> I'm not legalistic about spelling. Um, yeah, so some people were, some of the writers were better writers than others. Um, they used a more polished form of the Greek language. John, as Daniel Wallace liked to say, John was a creative speller. Uh, Daniel Wallace is one of the leading uh, textual scholars in the world today, if not the leading textual scholar. But John spells the same word three different ways in one passage. So he's... He's a creative speller. They didn't have a dictionary and said, here's how you must spell each word like we do today. Uh, so John was more like um, people who use, I don't want to say he was using chat language or anything like that. It wasn't quite that bad, but more like sending emails where, you know what, he's not really super concerned about the spelling because that's not the point. The point is, is he getting the message across properly? So you're saying this was in the days before the little red squiggly line went underneath what you wrote. Exactly. I, I don't know. I don't ever see that because I spell things correctly. But, <laughs> no, actually, I do because I use words that sometimes the dictionary doesn't know. But um, That's funny. So I think, you know, there are a lot of different ideas people have about inspiration and what that process was like. I think we should save that for a different episode if people want that. You know, people give all sorts of different analogies. You know, is it like the the person in the band who's playing an instrument? Was it like uh, the dictation model that I just talked about? Um, yeah, I was about to say, I'm ready I'm ready to throw out one of those analogies, but you're probably going to say, Eric, your analogy falls short. Yeah, go for it. Let's see what happens. <laughs> well, yeah, well, and we can we can cover this more. Okay, so here's my analogy. Uh, tell me how this falls short, because I know you're going to. Um, if you, if I wrote down something, so I got my marker right now. If I wrote down, this is my uh, pen. So I wrote that down. Okay, now did I write that or did the marker or the pen write that? Yes. I would say no. Some <laughs> people would say, well, people who argue the Bible was written by man would be like saying, well, the pen actually wrote it when I was really the one who used the instrument to write it. Now, Tim, tell everybody why that one falls short real quick. Well, remember what we just talked about in terms of how God allowed the people to use, the, the writers to use their own vocabulary, their own style, and uh, sometimes they spell things differently. The example you gave doesn't allow for that. It's mm -hmm. more of like a very mechanical dictation where it's, um, he is not just simply overseeing the process and guiding the process, he is um, essentially forcing the hand to do everything exactly um, in order and then I, I don't know that I'd really want to charge the Holy Spirit with being a creative speller you know what I mean yeah. <laughs> so, and and sometimes he has better Greek than others than other times he's not oh, that's as funny good. so there that's one right, area where so that, that falls one short. that one falls short all right yep. we can hit more later I know you wanted to kind of get into really this concept of okay how can the Bible be quote without error if it was written by people who make mistakes Make mistakes, yeah. make errors. Oh, yeah, yeah, we do. We we make mistakes, but we don't always have to make them, and that's really the key. It, it's fascinating to me that people can use this argument against the Bible and say, how can you believe it's without error because people wrote it and people make mistakes? Yeah, but we don't have to make mistakes. You know, is it possible for, for you or me to write a a book without error? You know, let's say we wanted to write a math textbook or something that goes from, uh, uses just numbers 1 through 10, and it's just about addition and subtraction. Do you think we could maybe accomplish that one? It sounds like I could I could probably handle that one. I, I think I could too. I didn't English. want to throw in multiplication yeah. and division or any higher numbers because we start might start making mistakes. But we could do something without error, so we don't have to make them. Uh, so 
That's especially true if somebody's writing is guided by the Holy Spirit. So then they're going to be able to write something that is without error. So since it is possible for us to, to write something that doesn't have errors, if you think about this question in another way, if, if, it, if it's a skeptic asking the question, ultimately, doesn't that become a rather meaningless question? Because if they have to make mistakes, then their question itself is mistaken, correct? Oh, if they have to make mistakes. Yeah, so if, if we assume that every time we write something, every time we do something, we're making mistakes. Because that's ultimately what they're, they're assuming when it comes to the Bible. Right. That, well, you're, you've got a lot of writing there, so you're going to make a mistake. Well, that idea, because it's coming from a human, then that must be mistaken too. See, I've always wondered about that. I mean, it, it seems to me like these arguments for you can't trust the Bible, it was written by man, are passed on by people reading books that were written by man. So why can't they apply the same logic to their own, you know, they, they go to school or they read some, you know, Bart Ehrman's book on why you can't trust the Bible. It was written by man and you're reading something that was written by man. It never really jived with me why they would put those together. Yeah. Well, think about that in terms of like a, a science textbook. You know, a lot of times these, this type of objection comes from a skeptic and they'll say, well, you can't trust it because it's written by man. Well, the science textbooks that you put so much stock in that you think prove the Bible wrong, those are written by people too. Yeah. So that must mean those are an error. So it's really an, in, it's an inconsistency in, in their worldview. They have to at least assume the possibility that somebody could write something without error. And, and I sense. think we can all get that as soon as we think through that question a little bit. That's not that hard. But I have a funny story about this too, if I can share this. I think people yeah, will, will enjoy it, this. Me. We have... Uh, in the Ark Encounter, uh, I think guests or listeners know if they listen to the first episode, I, I had the privilege of doing most of the writing for the signage there. And one of the exhibits is called Why the Bible's True. It's the very last one that you go through. And it's like walking through the pages of a graphic novel. And in that, we have two college students who are challenging their friend, who's a believer, about his faith. And he's defending his faith. He's answering their questions. And, and this question comes up. And he says, you know... We do make mistakes, but we don't always make them. Isn't it possible for a, for a person to, to write something without making an error? And the, the funny part about this is out of all the signs in that exhibit, you know, there, there's probably, you know, 60 to 80 signs in that entire yeah. exhibit with writing and everything. Out of all the signs that we printed, that was the one that we had an error on. <laughs> and, and i have a good excuse for it I mean, I mean it's still ultimately my fault i'm the one that checked it and signed off on it but um one of our friends that you know eric that you know um he was in a hurry to get these printed and usually i always sent them off for a grammar review um we we did that with a word document but then we even did it after when the signs were ready to go and i was looking through six or seven pages worth of signs with all these little word bubbles like you see in a in a graphic novel and finding all these duplicates that he had and a whole bunch of things. And he, he gave me like half an hour to go through. He's like, we got to order them right now if we're going to get them in time. And it, it was a big rush job. And I missed that one where it says, isn't it possible for a person to write something? The letter A was missing. <laughs> and I missed wow. it. So out of every sign, talk about a way to, 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 to humble someone. Out of every sign, that was the one that had the mistake. So... <laughs> the one that talked about yeah, the one that talked about how we don't have we to make do this <laughs> right. <laughs> so when you're going through the Ark Encounter, you might have a little smile on your face when when you see that one. So is it fixed? Is that one sign fixed? Oh yeah, it's fixed. Uh, okay. But it was funny. I got a text from my boss 
um, it, while they were putting the exhibit together. And it was just a picture of that sign. And it said, who approved this? Not good. <laughs> <laughs> I, looked at it, I think I had to read it like three times before I noticed because you know how your mind just skims over your own writing. Yep. Oh, man. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like getting those texts. That's funny. Well, I and I'm sorry I don't have the name of the person who wrote this question in, but how do we trust the Bible if it was written by man? Uh, Tim, give us a, a kind of a, a final overview to that, and then I want to get to Julie's question about what does it mean to abide in Christ? Yeah, well, as Christians, we believe that the Bible was, yes, it was written by men, uh, but they the writing was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So people don't have to make mistakes, and as Christians, we believe that when the Holy Spirit's guiding that process, then they're not going to make mistakes. So we, we can go through the different arguments for inspiration. We can show, you know, archaeological evidence, all those different things. But just from a big picture perspective, just because we do occasionally make mistakes and sometimes more than just occasionally, we don't have to do it. And uh, we believe that God prevented that from happening during the process of Scripture being written. I just look at, at the Bible, just one kind of the, the big overall. I remember Mark Spence doing a video about this. Uh, he's from Living Waters Ministry, and he he said, you got 40 different author, uh, authors over, uh, you know, 66 books, 40 authors over, uh, was it a 2,500-year period? 1,500-year uh, period. F 1,500, that's right. 1,500-year period. And they talk about all kinds of topics, and they're harmonious. You you can't get that today. It's 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 amazing to see that the historical accuracy, the archaeological, you know, truth that's been discovered, all these apologetic truths that go into the Bible. No book has even undergone the scrutiny that the Bible has gone under, let alone gone through it and passed. So uh, it really is incredible as you study the Word of God. All right, if you have more questions about that, send them in to bqa at creationtoday.org. Hey, next question. Julie asked, what does abiding in Christ mean? How do we, how do we actually abide in Christ? And I know this comes from the passage in John chapter 15, where um, it's given the example of the, you know, you are the vine, or I am the vine, you are the branches. And in verse number five, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And Tim, you might want to go into the bigger context. I know that whole passage is dealing with this, but what does it mean to abide in Christ? Yeah, I think there's two main views that, that Christians hold on this. And uh, one of them, and it really comes down to what concept is Jesus talking about here? What's the context? Is he talking about salvation or is he talking about sanctification? about discipleship, about growing in him. Uh, if it's about salvation, then I, I think we run into some problems. And this is the way that it's often thought about. Uh, people will say, well, you need to abide in him in order to be saved. We need to remain in him or we show that we're not saved. And there, really, there's two different ways that, that some Christians will look at that. You know, the people who might be more on the Arminian side would say something like, um, you know, if you don't remain in him, then you might lose your salvation or, or give away your salvation might be a way that some of them would put it. Uh, people more on the uh, Calvinistic side of things, particularly those who are um, in the Lordship Salvation camp, uh, like a full-on Lordship Salvation, they would say, well, if you don't abide in him, then it shows that you never were, that you never really belonged to him. But I think we got to look at the context a little closer. In verse 3, I mean, well, first of all, who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to his disciples. 
And in verse 3, he says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Then he says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So is he talking about being clean, being cleansed? No, he says they're already clean. He's talking about bearing fruit. And so I would say that I, I think the context here tells us that he is, he's establishing that this is about discipleship. He's talking to disciples. He's talking about how they should grow in him, how they can, uh, how they can bear much fruit. If, if it's the other view, ultimately, would we be saying that salvation depends on our own works? Mm. You know, no, if, yeah, if you right. have that to continue to work in order to keep it or in order to prove that you really were, is salvation dependent on what we do or on what Christ has already done? And it always depends on what Christ is. Right. It's, it's no not dependent on us. For by grace are you saved through faith. Exactly. So it's by trusting in him, by having faith in him that we are saved because he's already done it all. He's accomplished all of the, he's done everything, you know, when he died on the cross for us and then rose from the dead. So we cannot well, let me, add. Let me throw a twist. Let me, let me just challenge this. This same passage, I know it does talk about, you know, the, the branches that don't bear fruit are going to be cut off and cast into the fire. How do you yeah. answer that? Is that is that context for like the lake of fire? Like as in, well, if you don't if you don't abide, if you don't stay, I mean, so you're saved. If you don't abide, you're going to burn in hell. You know that that's how a lot of people would look at it. And I think we need to be careful that we don't take the context from one passage and import that into something else. Just because you see the term fire in the sense of judgment, it doesn't mean it's talking about the lake of fire. Now people uh. might. You know, when you're li- if you're listening right now, you might think, "Well, you got to prove that." Well, I will. First uh, Corinthians three, <laughs> five through seventeen. And I don't need to read the whole passage here, but Paul is uh, talking about you know the divisions that were going on in, in Corinth, the sectarianism that was there. Uh, who who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And then he says, now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Okay, so he's talking about how we're going to be rewarded according to our labor. Then he goes on, he talks about how we're fellow workers, that we are God's building, and each one of us builds on that foundation, uh, which is Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 5, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. Ah. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, so that's like the gold, silver, precious stones, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, that's the wood, hay, and stubble. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But what's the next phrase? But he himself will be saved but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire this is not a passage about who goes into heaven who goes you know into the lake of fire this is about the uh reward or lack of reward that believers people who are building on that foundation of jesus christ that believers uh will receive or not receive when our works are tested when we we come before him and so he goes on he says do you not know that you are the temple of god and that the spirit of god dwells in you if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. There's some pretty harsh words. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So God will destroy him. He talks about how they will suffer loss, that their works will be burned up. And yet what? They're still, they're still saved. They're still saved. So if you yeah. look at that, if you, if you take this passage 
and you compare that to John 15 with I am the vine, you are the branches, you have the language about something being burned up, you know, those that are unfaithful, that they're not abiding in him, that they'll be thrown into the fire, that they'll be burned up or destroyed. It's the same sort of idea going on. So I think that John 15, the passage is about sanctification, not salvation. It's about discipleship, about growing in him. So what does it mean to abide in him? Well, abide means to rest or to remain in. And if if you're not already in him, how can you abide in him? How can you remain in him? So to, to abide in Christ means that we are relying on him daily. We're continuing to grow in our faith. We, we study his word. We spend time in prayer. Uh, we fellowship with other believers. Uh, he said in verse 10 that we are to keep his commandments. So that means we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. So we got to love our families, our neighbors, our enemies. Uh, we're to make disciples of all nations. And the only way we can effectively do these things is if we rest in him and rely on him and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that is, uh, I tell you, I, I for many years, and I, I still try to figure out that line between salvation and sanctification. There is a point of salvation, and then there is a work of sanctification. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of people in my life, Tim, that I see God working on their sanctification, where he's trying to get them to where I am at. You know, he's trying to get <laughs> Well, them to that's a life. pretty high goal. I don't know that people are going to get there. <laughs> <laughs> no, but really, I see in my own life, I go, oh, man, I just, I messed up again. I mean, I had to go to my kids the other day and just say, hey, guys, you know, I, I really... I really shouldn't have said something like this. I should have said it like this. And I just want you to know I'm sorry. So I get that. Were you che- were you cheering for the bears again? Yeah, no, no, definitely wasn't cheering for the bears. Okay. <laughs> Green Bay are, all the way. Baby. Yeah, for, if you guys don't know yet, you'll learn at some point that um, I'm from Green Bay. So uh, my loyalties are <laughs> green and gold during the football it's season. Actually, it's actually a law there. They actually That's right. That. You're not welcome Ever in the state if there. you cheer for a different team. That's right. <laughs> All right, well, Eric, wow. I think we got time for one more quick one here. Are you sure? Because you're going to have to answer this in like two and a half minutes or less. You really want to hit that? Yeah, I think we can cover this one. We got to get through more. Okay, we questions. need to cover it more. You guys write us right in. Uh, first of all, Julie, thanks for that question on abiding in Christ. It really helps give some context. Tim, you got two minutes to answer this question. What are your thoughts on the fate of Constantine the Great? Was it real or was it just a political mover to unite the empire? Go. All right, well... Ultimately, we can't know. We can't be the judge of that one to know whether he really was or he really wasn't. Uh, you know, Christians had been persecuted by Rome for the first three centuries after Christ. And sometimes, uh, you know, it was pretty horrible persecution at times, being fed to the lions in the arena and burned on stakes, all sorts of terrible things. But in 312 uh, AD, Constantine is preparing for ba- the battle at the, of the Milvian Bridge. And he wants to know which God is real because there's so many gods of the pagans and yet the, the church continues to blossom. It continues to grow. And you've got these Christians who are saying Jesus Christ is God. And he's, he's wondering. He really wants to know. And so according to Eusebius, who's like a, one of the early church historians, he was at the Council of Nicaea and he knew Constantine personally. Here's what he said about it. Accordingly, he... Uh, talking about Constantine, called on him with earnest prayer and supplications that he would reveal to him who he was and stretch forth his right hand to help him in his present difficulties. And while he was thus praying with fervent entreaty, a most marvelous sign appeared to him from heaven, the account of which it might have been hard to believe had it been related by any other person. But since the victorious emperor himself long afterwards declared it to the writer of this history, when he was honored with his acquaintance in society and confirmed his statement by an oath, 
Who could hesitate to accredit the relation, especially since the testimony of aftertime has established its truth? So he's saying Constantine confirmed this to me over and over again and said, yeah, he, he really did see this. And he sees a change in his life. Eusebius is saying that I saw a change in his life to the point where I believe that this really is true. He said that about noon, when the day was already beginning to decline, he saw with his own eyes the trophy of a cross of light in the heavens above the sun and bearing the inscription, conquer by this, or, you know, by this sign, conquer. At this sight, he himself was struck with amazement and his whole army also, which followed him on this expedition and witnessed the miracle. He goes on to win the battle. And then the following year, he issues the, the famous Edict of Milan, which grants Christianity legal status in the empire for the first time. So rather than being persecuted, now they have the freedom to worship. Um, just a little fun fact, the Edict of Milan Milan wasn't really an edict. It was just a letter. And it wasn't really issued from Milan, but from uh, Mediolanum. So just a little fun fact of history there. But then 12 years later, uh, in 325, he called for the famous, or some people would say the infamous, Council of Nicaea in an effort to end some of the division in the church. He built... Uh, we'll get into the Council of Nicaea another time. He built a lot of the famous churches, old St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome, um, not the one that's there presently, but the old one. Uh, he ordered the building of the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople, uh, which obviously is named after him, the city is, uh, which is modern day Istanbul now. Um, and it's that now it's a museum, but it's just a gorgeous building there. And he built, Eric, I think you've been here, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Oh, yeah. um, so his mother picked that site, and we can get into the history of that another time. But um, so it seems like from, from those details that, yeah, he truly did convert, but there's other problems with that because he doesn't seem to have ever fully abandoned some of his pagan views. In 330, so five years after Nicaea, the, the column of Constantine was dedicated and it featured a mixture of pagan and Christian symbols on the column. And it was topped by a, a, a statue of Constantine himself as the, appearing as the sun god Apollo. Um, he was reportedly baptized on his deathbed in 337 AD. So was he a true Christian or was he just a shrewd politician who thought it was wise to side with the Christians because they were becoming more and more popular in the empire? Um, he certainly did many things that showed favor to Christians, but that public attachment to some of the pagan elements calls his faith into question for many. So if I had to guess, I, th I think I would say that he was probably, that he probably did become a real believer but it seems like he remained um, fairly shallow in that faith, or he didn't really, he didn't really abide in Christ. He didn't really grow in mm. his faith, and uh, he he still had some of the uh, errors of the paganism in there. But there, there's more to it than that. That's the quick answer. I know it was a little longer than two minutes, but um, yeah, I was gonna say that was, that was four and a half minutes, buddy. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, you got to get a little bit of history. I told you this is about church history too. It's not just <laughs> questions about the Bible. Hey, this is. This is really good information. I really do enjoy studying this, learning about this. If you have questions, send them in to bqa at creationtoday.org. And looking forward to next week getting into uh, some other questions about uh, the gap theory and are there uh, authentic secular writings about Jesus. So we'll get into some more great questions about the Bible in next week's episode. Tim, thanks so much, man. Appreciate it. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for, for being a co-host. And listeners, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Bible Q&A podcast. If you have a question you would like Tim and Eric to address on the program, please send an email to bqa at creationtoday.org. The views expressed on the Bible Q&A podcast do not necessarily represent those of other ministries with which Tim and Eric are affiliated. Thank you for listening.